with class. I have had a lot of technical difficulties, and I'm not sure I'm going to have a PowerPoint or not. But uh, if not, you can follow along. Got your handouts at least for this next lesson. want to finish up last week before we get started for this week's lesson. So we're going to end up in uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 here at the uh, beginning of class. And we'll discuss that briefly before moving on to chapter 4. But before we do that, I want to, uh, is there any announcements, prayer requests, anything like that that needs to be made this morning? All right, I don't see any. Let's start off with a word of prayer then, if you would. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful for the Lord's Day that you've given us today. The first day of the week that we can set aside time to focus and concentrate on you and all you mean to us. We can open up your word and study it together as a family of believers here at Dalreda. And God, we're thankful for this time and period of Bible study. We ask that you be with us as we open up the book of James. Uh, may we be able to garner some of the lessons there to apply it to our lives to be uh, stronger, better, more mature Christians. And may we uh, continue to strive for maturity in our spiritual lives. Lord, we're thankful for the congregation here at Dalreda. We're thankful for all the things that it stands for, the truth, and the, uh, the things that it teaches as we strive to look to your word for guidance in our lives. And Lord, we ask that you continue to be with us, watch over us here at Dalreda as we uh, strive to be the light set up on a hill so others can see your truth and your love and your salvation. Lord, we're thankful for Jesus, most of all, who died on the cross for our sins. And it's through his name that we offer this prayer. Amen. I don't like technical difficulties. It rattles me because it doesn't, things don't work like they're supposed to. So uh, this morning, hopefully I won't be too rattled by that. And I apologize for not having the PowerPoint that I spent a little while working on. Um, my wife's rolling her eyes back there because I spend way too much time on this kind of stuff, she says. Uh, but uh, anyways, I do apologize for that. Hopefully, we'll see if I can get it going while I'm talking. But uh I want to finish up with chapter 3. We, we talked about the tongue and then it led into the wisdom section there at chap- the end of chapter 3. If you don't have last week's lesson, it's okay. It's not on there anyways. Uh, because I'm actually skipping and condensing one whole lesson here real quickly. And hopefully in five or ten minutes, we, we spoke briefly about it last week. Uh, about where to get wisdom is the lesson title. And really, if you look at verses 13 through 18 there of chapter 3, what you're going to see is a section of Scripture there comparing and contrasting uh, worldly wisdom with spiritual wisdom, that wisdom which comes from above versus that wisdom which comes from below. Uh, And so you'll see there a section of Scripture that should challenge us uh, to really think about where do we get what we think. And real quickly, let's read that passage again. We read it last week, but I want to reread it as we begin the discussion this morning. It says, verse 13 of James chapter 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
And so what we see here is a section of Scripture on the tail end of discussing the tongue. And you'll see there, verse 13, is a good transition type verse there of how does this go together with uh, using the tongue and the issues that we have with the tongue. Well, what you see there in verse 13, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And so you see there an example of using your tongue, using the actions that you take. It's really incorporating chapter 2 and chapter 3 here with that verse. But you do so with the gentleness of wisdom. And we talked about last week real quickly that there are, there are a couple of things that this passage really points out for us. It uh, contrasts, first of all, uh, the origins of wisdom. And so real quickly, think about that, the contrast and origins of these two types of wisdom here, the true wisdom versus false wisdom. Uh, this angle of contrasting and origins, you think about it, he makes a, the, the valid point here in verse 15 that this wisdom is not that which comes from above, but it's earthly, natural, and demonic. You see the, the difference in the origins. You know, think back to the, the, the origins of several different things. You know, think about the, uh, the folly of man's wisdom that we see in scriptures. You know, man's wisdom thought it was a good idea to build this big tower going all the way to the heavens. You remember that back in Genesis? It's called the Tower of Babel. Most of us remember the story as children. But if you go back as an adult and relook at that, what you're going to see is the mentality of the adults, of the, the people, the mentality of the, the, the children of God at that, at that juncture thought that they could build a tower high enough to reach God. And that mentality in and of itself should cause a little bit of pause on our, our, our parts. You think... Man's wisdom was foolish enough to think that that was all it took to get up to, to God's level. And God, of course, we saw what he did. He, can, he gave them uh, confusion. It ended in failure. Uh, they did not attain that which they thought in their foolish man's wisdom to, to do. You know, in, in foolish wisdom, uh, the man's wisdom, Abraham went to Egypt when a famine occurred instead of trusting in God. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, and, and obviously when he came to Canaan, you know, the, the, it was pointed out there to him that he was not fully trusting in God. His wisdom did not exceed that of God's. King Saul thought it was wise to put his own armor on young David for uh, his battle with Goliath, but obviously God's plan was otherwise. He didn't need that armor. You know, man's wisdom is not the same as God's wisdom. Uh, the disciples in the New Testament thought it was wise to dismiss the great crowd and go find their own food elsewhere. Remember that? And in fact, what was God's wisdom? God's wisdom was, I'm going to take care of my people. And matter of fact, with five loaves and two fishes, he fed thousands upon thousands. That's God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. The, the, the origin of wisdom is very interesting to think about because where it comes from gives an impact as to how important and what kind of impact it's going to have in our lives. So you look at the origin of wisdom, the contrast is pretty apparent there. You see on one hand there's a wisdom of this world uh, where there's a, lot, a great deal of knowledge, there's a great deal of, of facts and things that can be brought into play, but if you don't incorporate that with God's wisdom, which is obviously more paramount, uh, you're going to have a disastrous uh, result. Uh, God's wisdom, the result or the, the origin of God's wisdom, of course, is, comes from Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 24 and, and 30. Uh, the word of God is also our wisdom. You see, reported in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the idea of, of keeping God's words, that it's going to be that which guides us in life. That becomes God's wisdom. Uh, it's not always that which we think, it's what God thinks. Uh, James 1.5 indicates that we find wisdom through believing prayer. 
You know, we talked about the importance of prayer. We're going to end with that probably in two weeks as we conclude this quarter of studies. As you think about chapter 5 and what it says about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's the King James Version. That's what I remember as a child growing up. But that, you know, that, the idea of uh, that prayer bringing about much good, availing much to us, is something that is pretty deep in understanding. And it becomes a part of God's wisdom, not our wisdom, because we don't understand it, do we? We don't truly understand in our wisdom, in man's wisdom, how can prayer mean anything? How can it bring about any change? In fact, you see people debate it all the time. But God's wisdom, the things that God expresses to us, says that it does. And so if you believe those things, if you trust in God, then obviously you have to defer to his wisdom versus your wisdom and your understanding. So the origin of true spiritual wisdom is God. And to get your wisdom from any other source is to ask for trouble and failure. You also see in this passage a contrast in the operations of wisdom, how they operate and how they they look. Well, the evidence of of false wisdom, how wisdom of man operates and what it brings about. Uh, The operations bring about envy. Chapter 3, verse 14, you have that selfish ambition and zeal that envy brings along with it there that uh, believers can see and they they experience that whenever they start substituting their own selfish ambitions over those things which God wants. You also see that the operation of false wisdom brings about the evidence of strife. In chapter 3 verse 14, uh, there's not calm there. In fact, there's bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. They, they, they bring about issues and problems among believers. Not peace. Not understanding. Not a uh, those, those other traits that God desires for Christians to have. In fact, it's just the exact opposite. Uh, false wisdom also brings about boasting. And the boasting that you see in chapter 3 and verse 14 uh, parallels the idea of the pride and the fact that you have the, the arrogance uh, of an individual that a man becomes kind of puffed up. And you'll see this as you look around this world and comparing God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. Those that have become almost too learned for their own good. Uh, I've seen it before, and they really become really puffed up because they've gone through all these classes. They've gone through all these educations. They've got a lot of different, uh, you know, I guess degrees at the end of their name, you know, all these PhDs and masters and all, you see their name and they, they, they put all those degrees at the end trying to tell, them, tell the world how much that they know, uh, when in fact, when they start discounting what God says and what God puts forth, uh, you see an obvious contrast there among those that want to follow God versus those that want to puff themselves up and kind of boast and be prideful about all the things that they know. Uh, I respect those probably the most that I know that are very learned but that they will be quick to tell you, I have much, much, much more to learn. And those, I really truly believe, that seek after God's wisdom are going to realize in the end that the more you learn, the more you're going to realize you got much, much more to learn and understand. There's not an ending point. You don't become to to this point where you know everything. And the know-it-alls of this world really kind of get under our skin, don't they? And they get under our skin because what we see is a lack of humility and I believe a lack of understanding. And ultimately what we see is a lack of wisdom here. So the contrast in how they operate is because they're not operating according to God's wisdom. They're operating according to man's wisdom. And you see that operation brings about boasting. And then ultimately it brings about also deceit, fourthly, uh, where the, the truth is not conveyed. Those things which are set forth are not the things which God wants. In respect or in really direct contrast to this, how does God's wisdom operate? You see in the passage multiple things uh, which are listed. We're not going to be able to get into all of them because I've got to get to chapter 4 this morning. But you see here, what, is, what does God tell us here through James that... 
God's wisdom operates and brings. Well, you see, it brings about meekness. Chapter 3, verse 13. Let him show by his good behavior, indeed, the gentleness of wisdom. Some passages say the meekness there. It's the idea of, of a humility. It's not weakness, but it's power under control. Uh, so you don't have weak. You're not weak because you're meek. Uh, you have power And that power is under control. It is an understanding. It is a knowledge that is put into play when it needs to be. It's because you're truly seeking after that wisdom which God puts forth. Uh, God's wisdom also brings about purity. Verse 13 brings about peace. And verse 17, I'm sorry, purity and peace are both 17. It brings about gentleness in verse 17. It brings about compliance, verse 17. Mercy, verse 17. Good fruits, decisiveness. Sincerity, all these traits are seen in God's wisdom, not man's wisdom. And so if you look at verse 17, obviously there's that, that, that listing there. And Paul, Paul likes lists whenever he writes his epistles. And James likes this list as well here. We could do a whole series of sermons based upon this list of what God's wisdom is. But God's wisdom brings forth all these things which are good, these things which are fruitful, in comparison directly to what man's wisdom brings forth. Man's wisdom brings forth things that are bad. Jealousy, strife, complaining. And on the other flip side of the coin, God's wisdom, it says there, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And you see that the seed which is fr- whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You know, those show you what kind of operation that God's wisdom brings. That's the kind of thing that we need to be striving for. That's what God wants us to strive for. God wants us to embody heavenly wisdom and not man's wisdom. Now, it's very difficult sometimes, especially in the, the modern world that we surround ourselves with. You can't help but turn the TV on and hear about all the debates about education in this world. You can't help but see how it influences our children and possibly your children or grandchildren, your families, as they start talking about what all they've heard and what they've been taught in school. It's amazing to see how education starts to transform people. And the idea is, is we've got to keep as Christians it in focus that it's nothing wrong with getting education. There's nothing wrong with uh considering the, the facts and the circumstances that surround us even while we tread on this, this God-forsaken earth sometimes. What we've got to keep it in view is that God's wisdom should influence how we perceive these things. It becomes the glasses through which we view life. And if we are viewing it through the wisdom of God and the, the passage of Scripture, those things which should rule and become the, the origin, as I've already said, of that wisdom, we're going to have a whole different perspective on life. God's wisdom then in effect is going to transform those things which surround us into things which are beneficial and help contribute to our lives living in a way that God wants us to do. In effect, God's wisdom becomes operational in our life and it brings about all these things that we just read, especially there listed in verse 17. God's wisdom operates definitely and distinctly different than man's wisdom. Finally, you see also in verses 16 and 18 a contrast in the outcomes, which I've already kind of alluded to as I've, I've got onto my little soapbox here with respect to God's wisdom this morning. But what you see is the outcome of these wisdoms. What's the difference? You know, is there a difference in man's wisdom versus God's wisdom? And in fact, we see that there is. Verse 16, the, the, the result of worldly wisdom, you've got trouble, the envy, the strife, the jealousy. Can any of us say that's a good thing? No. 
Man's wisdom, though, brings forth those things. The worldly wisdom that surrounds us brings forth all those bickerings and those problems that, that kind of begun, begin to corrupt our mindsets and even can corrupt uh, the Lord's church and the body of believers that we see around us. And that's what can creep into if we follow after the wrong wisdom is the outcome is going to be strife and bickering and problems. Uh, there's going to be nothing but trouble when you follow after man's wisdom and worldly wisdom. On the flip side, though, verse 18, what happens if you follow after God's wisdom? Well, God's wisdom produces what? Blessings upon us as his followers. Verse 18 says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so you see the outcome there of God's wisdom is going to be blessings upon us. There's a vast difference between the man-made results and the God-given results. The fruit, of course, is the product of life, and the fruit has in it the seeds for even more fruit. And you see the blessings not just given to those who follow God, but also those who follow those that are taught from us. It really is parallel to the the passage and the prayer that Christ prayed in, in John chapter 17. You remember as before he left this earth, he prayed for those that believed in him, those disciples. And then he also believed on those who believed through the disciples. And he prayed that they all may be one, just as he and the Father are one. Remember that prayer in John 17? It's a great prayer of unity. But the stressfulness there is the idea that disciples are going out and teaching and passing along these blessings that James 3, verse 18 is even talking about, is that we pass along those things to others. We become a blessing in their lives because they are following God's wisdom. And instead of having trouble and strife in their life, instead of struggling day to day with realizing who they are and really whose they are, they have this understanding that they are God's because God's wisdom tells them that. God's wisdom tells them that you follow and are obedient. You're going to be under his, his arm of care. He's going to be there taking care of him. You know, just like Peter says, you know, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. You know, that's very difficult for us to do, especially if you're following after the world's wisdom, right? Because the world's wisdom tells us we're fighting for ourselves. You know, we're all we got. Maybe you can say you can rely on your spouse, your husband or your wife. Uh, but really, you've got to kind of fend for yourself in this world, right? That's what this world's starting to tell us, is that it's kind of a, a dog-eat-dog world sometimes. And you, you want to talk about evolution, you know, the idea that survival of the fittest, that's what's taught every day around this world, is that all you've got to care about is yourself. You are number one, and that's all that matters. That's worldly wisdom. But God's wisdom, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. You aren't what matters. Others matter. God matters. You become the the back seat. You become the the secondary, the third, the fourth, the the end, in fact. Jesus himself says, you know, you're you're not even supposed to be the first. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Think about that in your mindset. And that's what worldly wisdom doesn't understand and comprehend. But on the flip side, God's wisdom does. And God's wisdom understands that if we follow after that prescribed chain of thought, if we under those prescribed commandments, we will be blessed. That's the ultimate outcome. Now, we may not always feel the blessings in this world. Remember James chapter 1. Again, I want to echo what we said, James 1. What? Take joy, my brethren, when you suffer various trials. Remember that? When you encounter those trials in your life. How can he say that? Well, then here, tie it in here with James chapter 3, verse 18. It ties in because that's God's wisdom. This world may say, hey, you can't take joy. Are you kidding me? You're glad that you're sick and dying? Seriously, as my daughter would say, seriously? 
That's what the world says to us. But as Christians, we put those view, those glasses on of God's wisdom, and those spectacles tell us that, in fact, God's wisdom tells us we can take joy. Why? Because it builds us up. It creates patience. It creates obedience. It creates steadfastness and dedication and perseverance in this world for us. And also, ultimately, God's wisdom tells us that in the end, we will have blessings. Why? Not just on this world, but the blessings that we receive in the hereafter far outweigh anything we might go through on this world. That's God's wisdom. And James is stressing to the Christians there is, hey, the things that, that you think and you're being told and that are being surrounded by you on a day-to-day basis, they're not important. Why? Because that's worldly wisdom compared to godly wisdom. Pursue godly wisdom, verse 18, because when you do, when you do, you will have this peace that comes about you. And that, my friends, translates into chapter 4 which I think it's a good transition there to think about chapter 4. Turn with me to James chapter 4. We're going to look at the first, first 12 verses for the remainder of this class this morning. As I said last week, I've got to get chapter 4 and chapter 5 now into three classes that are left. So the time remaining today, and i got two more classes. I don't know if it's going to happen, but we're going to do our best to get through this book because I think James is a great book, and I don't want to miss the lessons of chapter 5 because there's some good lessons there. So let's try and speed through here. Let's read verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4. Keep in mind what we just talked about. The difference between godly wisdom and earthly wisdom or man-made wisdom is the idea of what it brings about, what the fruits of it, what are the consequences, what it brings about, of course, is peace, it says in verse 18. Then translate that as we get into chapter 4. Remember, by the way, these breaks put between chapters weren't put there by James. So you, the, his readers would have kept reading, not knowing they had to stop You know, at the, the end of chapter 3. You know, they're going on in chapter 4. So look where we pick up here in chapter 4, starting in verse 1 through verse 12. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or or do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Consecrate or cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you sinners, and you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? These these 12 verses obviously pack a lot of meat in there. And we're not going to be able to, uh, to really kind of 
extricate it all out. So I encourage you to continue to study, to, to, to look at this passage of Scripture, because there's a lot of good stuff in the, these five chapters of James to me. And I know I said this at the beginning of our lessons, but there are some of the most practical lessons to us, I think, even today, than you can read in, in, in a lot of the Bible, to be quite honest with you. Even the New Testament uh, this becomes, I think, one of the most practical books for us to kind of understand what is Christianity all about. And here in this passage of Scripture, what he's starting to focus on are the problems that they have and the infighting that they experienced evidently there among the Christians. I don't think any of us can say that infighting is ever a good thing. That any kind of struggles or problems that arise, in, especially in a local congregation, are a good thing to experience. I don't think any of us would say, hey, I'm on board with that. I'll take one side or the other. And even those like me who don't have a problem with confrontation never should want to see the Lord's church divided because of what it does to the members and what it does to God, I believe. You know, there's no problem with, you know, arguing and, and, and debating. But the problem is, is it can reach a point where it can be so divisive and so destructive that God is so saddened by it. And what you see in this scripture, I believe, is a portrait that is kind of painted, this landscape of the church that existed there at the time of James, of a church that was struggling with things. That there was strife, there was bitterness, there was jealousies among them that obviously were beginning to corrupt the body of Christ. And so what James was trying to do here is, as you see, the transition from whose wisdom are we following? Are we following this worldly wisdom? Are we following godly wisdom? He gets right to the crux of some of his concerns to these Christians, these Jewish Christians, by the way, that were scattered uh, abroad among uh, the nation of Israel. And you see here that, that his concern is that there were quarrels and there were conflicts among you. You know, if I could solve and, and create, you know, I, I always love... I don't watch the pageants or anything, but you know all these Miss America pageants and Miss Universe or whatever, Miss World or whatever they call Miss whatever. You know, and, and it was kind of a joke there for a long time, which I think they still use it and they still say it. But you know, when they say, well, you know, what would you, if you were a world leader or if you were a president of the United States, what would, what would you strive for? And what would their, their comment always be? We would strive for what? World peace. You know, have you ever heard that? I have a lot of times. If I had the solution for world peace, don't you think that I should be sharing it? I would think so, because the quarrels and the conflicts that we see around this world uh, never bring about good things. You know, and you see here, how do you end wars? How do you end conflicts? How do you end struggles? Well, James really kind of lays it out for us, I think, as you read here in this passage of scriptures. You start seeing the, the examples and you see his teachings and the st- certain lessons and points that he makes about why struggles come into play and you can start seeing what the remedy for struggles and for wars and for conflicts really should be here in this scripture here. You know, in our minds, a lot of times we think of wars, of course, of being all these, these major battles around the globe and we think back to the, the major wars that affected us as a nation here in the United States. And, and, you know, you think of wars being those things, but really wars come in different shapes and sizes. And in fact, wars itself can kind of be waged among even a local congregation, unfortunately. Uh, there has been uh, wars that have plagued the Dalreda congregation in its history before I got here, but, you know, you still saw the, re- the repercussions. Even sometimes today you see some of the concerns and the worries because of the, the fighting that has gone on, even in the local congregation set. And those of you who have been here for many years, you know what, exactly what I'm talking about. When churches split, it's never a good thing. When, when churches have people who leave and cause the big to-dos when they leave, it's never a good thing for the Lord's body. 
And as you think about what the solution for those things would be, you can't help but go back and look at James chapter 4. Because here, what you see is the source of quarrels and conflicts among individuals and then also among congregations really kind of stems from several different things. And I've tried to outline them there on your handouts for you to kind of see. But you really see three different types of wars that are waged and that are kind of alluded to by James in this passage of Scripture. And these different types of wars and conflicts ultimately give us the root of where the problems lie. And when you see what problems can crop up in a congregation, then ultimately what I want to end on, and we won't be today, of course, but is how do we we seek for peace instead of war? How do we strive for peace instead of war? Because James gives us those comments as well. Real quickly, look with me here. As you look at the passage here, how do you end wars? Well, first, what you see is that there is a war that James describes. There is a war with each other that is described first and foremost in the passage of Scripture. Obviously, you see in verse 1 of chapter 4 of how James kind of talks about being at war with each other. And you see also it being addressed in verses 11 through 12 where he talks about not speaking against one another, not judging each other. They obviously had some issues there among the brethren. As they talked to the Christians there, there was some fighting and quarreling among them. Exactly what it was, I don't know. But what we do know is from Scripture that it is always always preferred it is always desired by God that we live in peace we dwell together in unity as Psalms chapter 133 verse 1 says that's what God's desire for his people are is for us to dwell together in unity if we are unified we may have some disagreements but it's not going to be quarrels it's not going to be conflicts that arise that literally tear us apart because we're unified we understand we have that unity together And when we have that unity, it is not replaced or exchanged for disunity. You cannot have both. And so what you see in this scripture is is a unity that is implored and that really should be striven for. You know, you think, surely brethren should be able to live together, right? Well, you just think about it. Even in the history of God's word, you see multiple examples of those who were kinfolk or who loved each other, who were not able to live together without having some, some conflicts and issues. Think back to Abraham and Lot. You remember in Genesis chapter 13, you know, that Lot caused a quarrel with his uncle Abraham, right? And it ended up causing them to split ways. And we actually see ultimately that Lot kind of chose the wrong path there whenever they split up. But you see, obviously, Abraham loved Lot, took him with him on the sojourn as God had commanded him to leave, and, and Lot came along with him. You think of others. Think of Absalom. Over in uh, first, or Second Samuel chapter, chapters 13 through 18, Absalom uh, created a war for his own father. Even the disciples created problems for the Lord uh, when they were on this earth, and they argued who was the greatest in the kingdom. Do you remember that conversation? Uh, obviously, that's not something that should have been debated And I love the way that that Jesus kind of squashed the argument uh, there as he dealt with his disciples, starting to create disunity among them. You know, when you examine even some of the early churches, you discover and uncover a lot of the issues that even early churches had. So churches are not immune to having disagreements and problems. You see that the Corinthian church, they competed with each other in public meetings. They even sued each other in court. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and over in chapter 14, verses 23 through 40, you see the fact that the Galatian church, uh, they had believers there who were biting and devouring one another. Imagine that, Galatians chapter 5, verse 15 is the way the translation there says. You know, members going at it among there. And, of course, they were implored and chastised to, to live peaceably. Paul even had to admonish the Ephesians, the Ephesian church, to cultivate spiritual unity. 
in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. You know, you talk about all the seven ones. I mean, the, the kids can say it and get a little trophy, you know, about the, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism. All the seven ones that are listed there in Ephesians chapter 4. But you know why they're there? It's because the church was experiencing problems to the fact that Paul had to remind them that we need to be unified. So Paul even had to remind and exhort the Ephesian church, hey, listen, y'all have got to listen up and be unified. Quit creating problems with one another. Even uh, Paul's beloved church in Philippi, uh, which obviously he had an endearing love for that congregation and those people there, even they had problems. In fact, Paul calls out two women who couldn't get along with each other over in Philippians chapter 4. Remember? Yodius and Syntyche. The idea that, that, that he calls them out by name and says, y'all need to get together. Y'all need to get along. You know, so obviously conflict can come arise. And it's not something that, that is, is, is odd or, or strange. But what you see is that the disagreements among each other should not be elevated to the point that they ever, ever take over the unity of the church. And once they do, they must be taken down. They must be, that, 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 that disagreement and that conflict must be squashed. Uh, there's a couple different things that you see in the scriptures here real quick that I want to point out that James kind of mentions really uh, different, uh, I think about four different types of disagreements that they had with each other real quickly. Uh, they had uh, wars with various classes there. You see in verses 1 through 9 of the, of the section of scripture there, the age-old rivalry between the rich and the poor, kind of, a, you know, it was the same thing back then. You had the different classes of people and so, you know, James is concerned there because they are, are dealing with individuals who may not be dealing and treating others properly because of the different type of status or class that they were. You also see there that there were some wars that are mentioned because of employment. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we haven't gotten to chapter 5 yet, I know, but if you flip over and see chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, you're going to see there an allusion made by James with regard to some issues that came up because of employment or the fact that individuals are owed days' wages. You know, so obviously there's some disagreements there that had spilled over from maybe the workforce, the workplace, there to the local congregation. That's not a good thing at all. Uh, it's one of those things where when we deal with people on, on a day-to-day basis, if we employ other members of the church, which I would encourage us always to do, we must understand that as we employ and we work together with them, those things should not be something that affects us spiritually speaking. But that's, in fact, what may have been happening here, uh, there, uh, as James discussed in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. You see, thirdly, fights within, fights within the church. Itself, And so that would have been among the, the believers there. Apparently, the, the believers were at war with each other over positions in the church, possibly. Uh, you know, we alluded to the fact, James chapter 3, verse 1, where James encouraged them, not many of you should be teachers, realizing that they, you have a greater condemnation, uh, maybe a recognition there that some wanted to be exalted just because of a place of prominence, not because of the, the important responsibility that, that that actually brought with it. It was more over the status or the position in the congregation, not necessarily what they needed to do. In fact, what you see through James here in James chapter 1 verses 19 through 20 and then James chapter 3 verses 13 through 18 is when they got together to study the word of God, instead of being edified, they had strife and arguments that came about. I mean, what kind of a church is that? You want to be a part of that congregation? Uh, James is saying, listen, these things shouldn't be that way. In a congregation, in the church, you know, we've got to be cautious and not let those fights overtake these things. Selfish ambition, it says there, rule their meetings and not spiritual submission. Again, let me repeat that. I like that phrase. I like the way the author that I've been using for this study uses that. He says, selfish ambition 
ruled their meetings, not spiritual submission. We're going to get to that in a little bit later when we deal with uh, what, what does it take to have peace. That latter part, spiritual submission is what it takes to be peaceable among all men. But in, instead of that, as they met together, they allowed their selfish ambitions to overtake whatever spiritual submission that they would have had. You also see here that there were personal wars that were going on. Fourth and finally, that little, uh, the disagreements and the conflicts that were going on and de- dealt with personal wars. You see that in the verses 11 through 12 of chapter 4, uh, talking about the war. You know, who are you to judge someone else, another Christian there? You see verses 11 and 12 talk about speaking against one another, speaking against a brother or judges his brother, speaks against the law, judges the law. You, you see those phrasings used there. So obviously there were some personal issues that were going on among the brethren amongst themselves, personally speaking. Things that didn't necessarily always stem from what was going on in the church building or among uh, the spiritual church, that body of believers. It was something that was personal. And so you had these individuals judging one another. Now, what James is not saying, uh, we'd have to go on a whole judging lesson. I think Doug did a good job several couple months ago when he did a lesson on what does judging mean. When you look at Matthew chapter 7 and, and the other passages talking about judging, he's not saying you can't discern what's right and wrong, nor is he saying you cannot look at somebody's uh, actions and try to deci- decide whether or not they are following and doing what they should be doing. What James here is, is addressing is a personal issue between different individuals where they're looking and they're judging motivation, they're, they're judging uh, things that they should not be doing. They become very personal attacks on individuals here. And so Christians, of course, we're supposed to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. We're supposed to not uh, follow after those things which are evil. Uh, obviously, if the, the truth about a brother is harmful, then we need to be careful where we spread that, right? That becomes a gossip almost. If we start talking about what somebody's doing that's wrong to other individuals, I mean, that's not what God wants us to do. We can still make the discernment as to whether or not they're following God's law or not, but going out and spreading it or talking to others to to go out and make it more of a personal issue instead of making it a spiritual issue, that's where the problem in lies. In fact, what the Bible says is that if we see a a brother that's overtaken in sin, what are we supposed to do with them? If they've sinned against us, first of all, Matthew 18 says we're supposed to go to them. We're supposed to try and make sure that that is reconciled. We don't go out and tell somebody else right away. You know, it kind of reminds me of me and Monica deal with, uh, especially with Marley as she's getting older, about the tattletale kind of thing, where you go out and you just kind of tattletale on somebody that, that's, not, that's doing something. And in some sense, if we just go out and start spreading what someone else is doing that's wrong, I'm not saying we can't say it's wrong. We can say it's wrong. You go out there and talk to somebody else about it that has no business knowing about it, and all we're doing is defaming our brother in Christ... God doesn't want that. He wants us to resolve that. And then what Galatians also tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, of course, is to bring our brother back from being engrossed or being brought about or, or, you know, just living in sin. And in fact, Galatians 6 says that that's what we should be doing as Christians is bringing people back from sin. Well, that's not what we're doing if we're going out and personally attacking them, are we? That's not what God wants in our lives. And the, the, the Christians here that James was addressing obviously had some issues, personally speaking. They were bringing about personal wars. And instead of encouraging the individuals to repent and to change, in fact, they just went out and attacked them. They, speak, they spoke against them. They, they judged them. And they brought about ruin instead of building them up and edifying the church like God wants. 
You know, those disagreements should not occur. And you see the wars that we fight with each other can bring about so many, many things that are negative, not just to the individual, but really for the Lord's church in itself. I mean, God, Jesus himself told us that we are to love one another. Why? So that others will see us and see what? God. See, God's love. See, God living through us, that they will want to be a part of what we are because of the way that they perceive us. And when we have fights and wars among each other, that in no way fulfills what God wants with us as Christians. Obviously, you have the wars with each other. You also have, I think you see in the scriptures, and James mentions here uh, the second type of war that we have, and that's at wars with ourselves. We may not get through this whole point this morning, so it's going to be something for you to really soak and think about. But as you look here in chapter 4, the latter part of verse 1 going all the way down through verse 3, you'll see James referencing and talking about the quarrels and fights that we have. But in essence, what he says in the latter part of verse 1, he says, Is it not the source of your pleasures, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? The war that we have with each other, what James says here, finds its source where? In the wars that we have with ourselves. Unfortunately, we wage battle with ourselves probably far too often. Instead of us giving in to what God wants us to do, we try to fight with ourselves. And it becomes an internal struggle with us. Of Do we do right or do we do wrong? Do we make this right decision, this good decision? Do we make this bad and poor decision? What do we do? with uh, the, the, the choices that we have to make in this world. And what James is telling us here is that we become war at war with ourselves. The war in the heart is helping to cause the wars in the church. Verses 14 and 16 says, But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, and this is chapter 3, we've already talked about this before, the wisdom idea. But here, you think of the source. If you have strife and you have bitter envying in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. Why? Because verse 16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. When we wage war with ourselves, it impacts and influences and it affects everything around us. You ever have that kind of come up in your lives when you have just a bad day and that in, and just snowballs? I, I'll, I'll say I, it happens to me far too often probably. You know, I'll get home and I'll, I'll have a rough day and uh, it's been me battling the casino bosses or, you know, whatever else I'm doing that day and, and you know, it's just, I'm, just, I'm just exhausted. I'm tired of arguing and I'm tired of fussing. I'm, I'm tired of, of fighting you know, on the outside all day long, come home, and of course I'm met by a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and what do they want to do all the time? Uh, well, the little girls, they like to fuss and, and fight and, and, and get, you know, get at each other. It's amazing. They're so different whenever you get them together than when they are separately. But Marley comes home, and it is like a totally different ball game whenever they walk through that door. And it is just on like Donkey Kong sometimes. You know, trying to figure out where, where they are in life, their personality. They're trying to figure out each other. You know, that's just part of growing up, I know. But, man, I tell you, I hit that door, and it can snowball. You ask Monica, there's some days where I just may lose it. And part of that is is because all the struggles and the strifes affect you as you move on in life. Now, I'm not going to say it's all internal. A lot of that's external. But there is some internal, you know, how do you handle these things? And those of us who are parents can realize that there are some times when you just have a bad day internally that you just kind of lash out to your children or your grandchildren or whoever, your, your best friend, your husband, your wife, uh, when you probably shouldn't. 
That's because it influences and affects us. It's the same way with regard to our spiritual lives. It's the same way in the Lord's church. In fact, we are you know, called the family of God, I think, for a good reason, because we can all relate to it. And in fact, what we relate to is the fact that there are things, when we have these internal struggles in us, when we wage wars within ourselves, it causes us sometimes to wage wars against others. Right? I mean, that's just the, the logical result and the logical end to it. And so what we see in scriptures here, James is encouraging us to take a second look and to think about those selfish ambitions, those things which we kind of focus on in our own lives and try to refocus them so we don't have such a negative impact on others. Quit fighting with yourself and you'll quit fighting with others is what James is inherently saying here in the passage of scripture. And what you see here in James chapter 4 is him trying to explain to us and to give examples to us is the fact that those waging wars inside of us all stem from sin. That sin comes about because of selfish desires, of selfish ambitions, and that causes us to wage wars within ourselves that ultimately affect others. Let's pick up here next week. Y'all please uh, go ahead and study the remaining chapter 4.